So, as we move forward into the future as First Christian Church uh, 2.0, right? <laughs> as we, we move into the future together as this, this same body of people, most, mostly in here, um, but we're in a new we're on a new trajectory together. Just that's just the way it is. And as we do that, one of the things that you're gonna you're gonna realize real quick is that I talk longer than you've probably uh, been accustomed to, and that's because we're gonna read more of the scripture, and the and the text is long. And I'm not afraid to read the text with you, like we're in a class together. I will try to keep it somewhat short, but. The scriptures, not Josh and Josh's thoughts, are, are the things that are going to help you in your faith journey. The scriptures uh, and trying to inspire you to go to the text and be a disciple and be a person that follows Jesus uh, through reading the Bible. And, and, and so we typically, we just acknowledge that it's a lot of work. The Bible is long, and, um, but it, there's fruit there to be had if we will engage it. So, and the reason I repeat that is, is through, we, we gain traction through repetition. We, we memorize things through repetition. And sometimes we need to unlearn some of the things that we've been taught or that we caught. And we need to relearn or learn afresh what we need to, 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 when we think about the scriptures or think about God. You are a living being moving into a future. And uh, I want you to be um, familiar with the scriptures but not in a mechanical churchy sense, but in the sense of, wow, this is the God who speaks, that has spoken, that speaks to me and works within my life and that the scriptures are alive. And, uh, and, and when you engage them, there's this transformation power that can happen to you. And then it can happen in your family. It can happen in society. It can spread from there. Now, as we move forward again as a church, I'm just going to kind of keep on acknowledging this is that uh, we're, we're a family. You're in this with me. I'm in this with you. My family's, we're, we're all in this together. And uh, there's so many thank yous I could say to all of everybody that, that you're going you're gonna to serve and you're going to give to this community. And, uh, and you might not ever even get a congratulations or a thank you, but it's okay because you're going to point it towards Jesus, right? We're going to point all the praise and all the glory to God and what God's going to do through your life and through this, this body uh, for, for your family and for the greater community. Numbers are important. And the reason numbers are important is not because we need to get more money or we need to get a bigger sanctuary out in the nice six acres that we have, which would be cool if that's the way that that went. But numbers are important because you need mass before momentum. If there's 10 disciples of Jesus that are truly on fire for God, they know the scriptures, they're excited about that, and the Holy Spirit's working inside those 10 people. They're going out into their families, they're going into their friends, they're going into the neighborhoods, they're going into the bars, they're going into the restaurants, they're going into where society is, they're going into Facebook and virtual reality. And they're, they're excited about Jesus, but they not only just have this excitement, boldness, but they've got a connected, intentional uh, plug into the source. If you can multiply that, which is what discipling is, is to get more of the 10 that are on fire for Jesus and multiply that, you can have exponential power in the families and in society. Are you with me? So that's why numbers are important, because those represent souls and, and, and people creating the image of God that we want to priest back to God so that they will priest others back to God. Do you see how that works? 
So that's, that's the passion that I have, and that's, uh, uh, I hope that, you, uh, that that's a little contagious for you. Um, so the thing is, invite people to come, and this might not be their thing. They might want a different type of uh, setting or whatever, and that's okay, but we're just, uh, can we just acknowledge that? I know that's not really preaching at you, but it's more like, hey, we're a family. We're in this together. Uh, it's okay to um, have a little meeting because we're, you know, we're all busy and, and uh, we don't get to do this. Maybe that's, maybe that's for a, a board meeting or something. I don't know. But I want to include you because you are part of the body of Christ and you are part of this church. And it's not about a personality, me coming and giving you my little thoughts and preaching at you. And then we, we, we eat some snacks and go home. It's like, no, we are going to be the movement of Jesus Christ, not the monument of Jesus Christ. We're going to be a movement. And uh, that's, that's my hope and passion. And so... With that, I, I, last week there was only two verses that we went through in Mark. Today there's 39 verses. <laughs> and everybody went, oh man. Uh, yeah, he's already wasted seven minutes. Well, here we go. We're going we're gonna to jump right in. I'm going to read the, last two, the verses from last week, which was Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And if I, I, the Bibles that I could find, I kind of threw them out there. If you have a Bible, maybe you have it on your phone. Uh, there's uh, apps that you can download. Um, but we, the screen, Jerry, thank you for all your work. I know that the, we're having issues with, with the screen and stuff, but we're going to get there. We're, we're in an evolution towards becoming more uh, accessible for the scriptures. But we'll just go old school. And if you have a Bible in front of you, um, that, the, the scriptures are where I want to take us. So there's 39 verses, and last week, the week before, we, we, highlighted a John, we highlighted a John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is the forerunner. We went through all of that, and there's a lot of things to unpack there. I have that sermon recorded if you want to listen to it again. It's about 30-some minutes long, uh, and then I have last week's as well, which is about 31 minutes long, and uh, if you want those, I can um, text them to you so you can get caught up on that. Uh, but, but essentially, Mark is one of the Gospels. It is the telling of, it's, a auto, it's like a biography. It's not autobiography. It's, it's a biography slash theology. Mark was a student of Peter. Peter was giving this information to Mark, and Mark was writing this down. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is probably the outline template that the other Gospel writers had used to write their stories. And so we're kind of connecting this back into Peter. Uh, Peter's the eyewitness account, and Mark is the one giving this um, uh, this template. It's 16 chapters. It's really fast. It, it's it's kind of like me talking. It's just immediately, immediately, and then this, and then that, and this, and that. And what Mark's actually going to unfold for us is who Jesus is. It was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the irony is that the book really doesn't ever end. It ends on this open-ended spectrum with the women not really doing their function. They're supposed to go out and proclaim that Jesus has rose from the dead, now, the other Gospels have these endings, but Mark is just, he just it's kind of the, the device that he's using to unpack what he's telling you. Is that it's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the disciples go out. It's like you immediately jump into Acts, you immediately jump into the, the church being the church. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and um, he leaves out a lot of content, which you can find in uh, Matthew, Luke, and John. And there's a lot of overlap. So... Um, we saw that Jesus begins his ministry with this. Mark tells us, remember, Mark's writing, and you have box seats. You have privileged information as you're reading this. Nobody else is, this isn't, you, you, you're sitting in the theater watching this unfold. Have that in mind as you're reading, reading this. John 
was arrested or John was handed over. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So Jesus starts his ministry. John the Baptist, this guy that was out in the desert, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. He was the forerunner for Jesus. He gets arrested. He's getting handed over. We'll meet him back up in chapter 6 where he gets beheaded. And this is what launches. It's the catalyst for Jesus' ministry. Proclaiming the good news that not, not just when we use the language of kingdom, we think of kings and queens. It's like so far from our thinking. We don't, we don't think like that. But what Jesus is announcing is God's ownership, God's reign of his creation. God owns it all by definition, right? If God creates it, God sustains it, God owns it. Jesus is proclaiming that this sky ripping open, the spirit coming into Jesus, and now God is on the loose. Mark is setting up these images of what it means for God to show up in time and space. So Jesus starts and he is proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. God has shown up and this is what it's going to look like when God shows up. Remember the 16 chapters? I'm really going to actually try to keep this shorter than, uh, than you think. Are you with me? Are you awake? Okay, this is a lot of content. But there's a story happening here, and it's not religious rules. It's a story. And so we need Isaiah's enthusiasm for this, okay? I'm going to give you the overview, and then I'm going to start reading. There's a couple scenes. Jesus calls his disciples. He calls them to be fishers of men. We're going to see that. He teaches in a synagogue. There's a demon-possessed man that cries out in the synagogue while Jesus is teaching. Then it moves to this scene where Peter, his mother-in-law, we didn't know Peter was married, but now we do, right? Because he has a mother-in-law. She's got a fever, and Jesus delivers her from this fever. We're going to see that. Jesus then retreats for prayer, and all the while, the crowds are pressing in. The people are showing up from everywhere to see this person, this radical moment in which God has shown up. But they don't, there's, there's this ambiguity. We don't know that Jesus is God. We kind of get that because of the first part of Mark. Uh, but for the people that are actually in the moments, even the disciples, they're trying to figure out what this all means. Now, a big piece of this context is that the Jewish people were waiting on a Messiah to deliver them in a political economic sense. From the empire of Rome that the Jewish people would not be oppressed anymore. So they're expecting because of the Old Testament prophets that there's going to be one who comes wielding a sword and chariots. And coming in and laying waste to the Roman Empire so that they can rise to the top and be God's chosen people in the world. And there's this mixture of faithfulness about God is good and this is the way that the world should respond to God and they should know the Jewish God. And there's this other side that there's this privilege aspect to their perspective that they are entitled to God and they should run everything. God keeps delivering these people so that they will deliver other people. But what happens is God, usually when he delivers the oppressed, they become oppressive. This happens when somebody comes to Jesus. They're like, oh, Jesus, forgave me of my sins. Oh, I get to go to heaven. This is great. But then there's this other aspect where if you get the Pharisaic religious self-righteousness that goes deep within your soul, you can end up becoming an oppressor with Jesus. 
which is toxic to God's salvation history plan. Are you with me? And so there's this both and. We really want to be on fire for Jesus. We want to be bold in our faith. We want to be right with God. But then there's this wicked world that's broken, and we got to try to step into it and without getting tainted ourselves and, and engage it and be faithful to this boldness. And at the same time, there's just this mixture that's going on. It's complex and it's intense. That's the context to which this story happens. Jesus retreats for prayer, and then he has another scene. Mark, this is all in chapter one. This is all just chapter one. Healing of a, of a person that comes to him that has leprosy or some type of skin disease, and Jesus heals him. So I'm going to give you a couple observations as we walk through all those scenes. And uh, my, my, uh, my goal is to inspire you with a couple of these thoughts that you might have never had when you're reading the Bible, when you're reading the text, and that, that might have you to go back and read this, and then keep rereading this as we move together into the future. And, and again, this is uh, more like, I was listening to one of, I was listening to the last two messages I gave you, and I was realizing how much of what I do when I'm preaching is sounds more like you're in a college classroom. And, uh, and, and so the, the reason is, that's just the way my mind works. And I think it's helpful when you start to see this in a different way than somebody just preaching at you rules. You need to have that enthusiasm. Isaiah, I'm so happy you did that this morning. You, we, we need that childlike oh, excitement and passion that burns within us to say that God is actually real. This is the only, when I start reading this stuff, it's the only thing that comes to my mind. Like everything else in my life, oh, this is what matters. And everything else should follow from this conviction, from this excitement. And I'm going to read the text to you now. Verse 16, if you have your Bible, Mark 1, 16. Remember, Jesus just announced that he's, the kingdom of God has come. John has been arrested. He's moved off of the set. This play is now in force. It's, it's now happening. It's, it's underway. And uh, it just moves right along into Jesus' ministry. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, which Simon is Peter, okay? Peter and Andrew. He's not called Peter yet. That's another scene. Matthew 16, if you're taking notes. Jesus saw Simon and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. That's their trade. Middle class fishermen of the ancient world. Doesn't say they're in a boat. They're just fishing. Which gives us the impression that Peter and Andrew are probably not very wealthy. They don't, they don't have a boat. But this is their labor. Jesus sees them and Jesus says to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Now, a lot of images going on here that you have to have the Old Testament to, to see what's going on here. You'll just pass along this and go, yeah, Jesus wants us to follow him. Jesus wants us to be a follower of Jesus and we'll be a disciple and we just leave it at that. But what this is doing is it's actually conjuring up images of the Old Testament. I believe it's Jeremiah 16, 16. You might check that. I know it's in chapter 16 of Jeremiah where he talks about there's going to be one that fishes for men. Long before Jesus tells Peter and Andrew that he's going to make them fishers of people. In the ancient world, disciples, Jewish disciples, they would go choose their rabbi, their teacher. It's not the, not the other way that this, that this happens in the text. Jesus calls them to follow him. It's not them coming to him to be, their, he, they're not going to go into an apprenticeship. 
uh, based off of their will, Jesus is actually calling them to follow him. Some commentaries and some people think that this is actually in the language of military style fashion, that Jesus is actually calling them to a revolution. He's actually calling them to, to a revolution, which in the ancient mind, right? Because we think Messiah is going to come with guns ablazing, right? We think that Messiah is going to come and deal with the evildoers uh, like some great Hollywood flick. And so Jesus, with this authority, with this command, he says, come follow me and we're going to catch people. And when Jesus says this, if you think about it, when a, a fish is caught, that they're arrested, they're taken and their life is done. And so as Jesus, you get these images of this, you will never be the same once you're caught by Jesus. But Jesus has taken them from their actual fishing endeavors and reality and using this illustration, this imagery from the Old Testament and calling them to a, a more intense cause. But the thing is, Rome doesn't need to be, a be threatened by Jesus because Jesus' way is to love the enemy. Jesus is to wash feet. Jesus is actually going to die underneath their execution method of cross. So Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, and they immediately, there's that word, Mark loves this, he's just moving really fast, he says, they immediately left their nets. It was strangely dim. Their pursuits, their passions, everything they were doing before, the monetary support, gone. Stepped into this life with Jesus, and they're moving in a different direction. They left their nets. And going on a little farther, he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John. John is the guy that writes the Gospel of John, the one that Jesus loved. And going on a little further, he saw James and John, the son of Zebedee, okay, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. So we've got the poor class, of middle class, and now we've got a little upper scale class that Jesus is calling to follow him. Zebedee's James and John's daddy, and he's got this fishing business, and he's... He's watching what's about to take place. Jesus sees them in the boat, a little upscale, compared to Peter and Andrew. Mark moves on really fast and he says, they were mending their nets and immediately Jesus called to them and said, they, they left their father Zebedee in the boat. This is the picture. They're in the boat. Jesus calls them, follow me. Probably says, make you fisher. we're going to make, make you fishers of people. They left their father Zebedee. You got to think, Zebedee's like, what's my succession plan, right? What, are, what am I going to do now? It's this abruptness that Jesus calls you to follow him because he's got this authoritative power. And Mark doesn't go into any deeper about how this actually, why would anybody leave their post to, to do this? So they left Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed, followed Jesus. Next scene. And they went into Capernaum, Mark's moon fast, and immediately, there's that word again, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, that's key, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Jesus immediately in his ministry, he's in a Jewish church and he's teaching. He's the, any male could teach in the Jewish synagogue and it's Jesus' turn and he's up there teaching and they were astonished at what Jesus was saying. Of course, Mark doesn't even tell us what he was teaching, but he does tell us about the reaction of the people again there's no, there's no content of what, what Peter and Andrew and James and John, what they, this dialogue that happened between them. It's just like Mark, like, he said, follow us, and we went. Now he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching. Don't, shouldn't we know what he's teaching? Do you think Jesus is saying, hey, you need, you need to believe in me so that when you die, you can have eternal life and avoid hell? That'd be pretty important if that's the, the essential part of the gospel, right? But we don't see that. 
we got to go a little deeper. We've got to go a little bit longer with it and unpack that. Jesus was teaching, and the people in the synagogue in the Jewish church were astonished at Jesus' teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not one as, uh, of the scribes. What the scribes did, what they did, they just read, they were just reading Torah. Just reading the rules. They're in the Jewish church without God. That's why later when we get into Mark and we see that Jesus says that he challenges the authority of the temple, is that people thought the temple was where God was housed. But the reality is, is that Jesus is actually the, chim- the temple. They were doing church without God. Now I know nobody does that in our day and age, right? Nobody does that in their faith. We do that sometimes um, at our apparel. In this, Jesus is teaching, and immediately there was in the synagogue a person, a man, with an unclean spirit. That's what Mark, that's what Mark says. And he cries out, the spirit inside of Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So this evil spirit, if you can go there with me, this evil spirit's in this man, in Jewish church, crying out as Jesus is talking. And Jesus gets a little violent with his language. It, it's, it's kind of tame here in the text. I'm reading the English Standard Version, but verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of it. Jesus is like, shut up to this demon in this person in the Jewish church. And the unclean spirit, the, the demon, con- convulsing him, shaking him violently and crying out with a loud voice came out of the man in Jewish church. And the people, the reaction, they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? This is a new teaching, but with authority. It's got power. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, if you remember why you're reading this in the first place is Mark's telling you about who Jesus is. This is Jesus' identity. God has shown up. And what does it look like when God shows up? God has this power in Jesus, and Jesus is calling the people from their lives to come follow him. It's the building of this story. There's this first scene where this guy has this problem that's taking over him. And it's a little hard for us in a postmodern setting to think about demons taking over people. We have Hollywood who has planted all sorts of weird images in our mind of the horror, right? If you watch horror flicks, those are locked in the chambers and files of your mind that will unpack. When you think of a demon or when you think of something, you're going to think of the exorcism of Emily Rose. But what we have is actually what the text says, not the imagination of creative individuals. This person, you know, have you ever said to somebody, what has gotten into you? You ever used that language before? What has gotten into you? Think about it. You're acting weird. What has come over you? This language that we use is actually more spiritual than you think. We use it in cliche language, but it's in reality. We know that something else is taking place. Jesus tells them to shut up, and Jesus has an authority. No scribe had ever done that before. No Pharisee had ever done that before. God has shown up, and the evil brokenness that's taking creation and making it uncreation, Jesus is reversing it. This is what it looks like when God shows up in people's lives. God starts to take back his creation because he's the owner of the house. Jesus is God in the flesh, and Jesus is uh, uh, basically saying he's here to clean the house. 
And the people are amazed because they're like, oh, maybe if that person is delivered, maybe the things that have overtaken me, have gotten into me, will be overtaken as well. And I will be healed and I will be made well. Mark moves on. God shows up. This is what it looks like. And immediately, there's that word again. And immediately he left the synagogue, Jewish church, and he entered the house of Peter and Andrew with James and John. So he's got the people he just called by the, by the uh, fishing, uh, in, uh, fishing session. Jesus calls them and they're with him and they, meet, they go into Peter's house. And Mark tells us this weird thing. He says, now Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. That's got to mess with your head a little bit that Peter had a, a wife. I mean, it's, we won't go into that very much except that, uh, well, I, I, I don't have time to digress into that. But um, a challenge to our, our Catholic brothers and sisters the early church fathers, uh, their, the dependence upon the Roman Catholic Church with, uh, with Peter being the, the, the rock and being the source to the keys of the kingdom, uh, this is a little bit of a challenge. The main, the main guy that is there, we have for Mark's description of what actually has happened and took place in time and space in history, um, he's married. So things that were developed along church history, there's baggage there that we have to sometimes process. And it's not being hyperly critical. It's being critical in the sense of what does the data say? The data says that Peter looks like he had a wife. And uh, so some of those things that the church did uh, in the sense of their rules as they moved through church history, one of those things being celibacy that priests could not marry. Um, it's an interesting fascination when you just go to the text. The text uh, gives us a, an interesting um, fly in the fly in the. You know, what is that? What is that perfume? No. <laughs> ointment. The fly in the ointment. Ah, darn it, as Isaiah says. Darn it. She has a fever. In our minds, we would say, take some acetaminophen or Tylenol, right? Or, you know, just get, knock that out. This is the ancient world. Fever is associated with demonic oppression as well. They think a fever is serious in the ancient world. It's something that, if it's not dealt with, um, death, is, death is very near. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately they told him, Jesus, they told Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law, because Peter was married. And he came and he looked at her, Jesus did, and he took, and he, took, he took her by the hand and lifted her up. Now remember, there's echoes in the text everywhere. This is going to be when he heals Jairus' daughter later. He raises her up. What does God do on the third day with Jesus? He lifts him up. He raises from the dead because death loses every time with this God. Death is dealt a, a serious blow. All of the brokenness, all the unraveling of creation, all of the darkness, all of the evil is dealt with when this God shows up. Good news. Amen. I know you want to eat, but we've got to keep going here. God in the flesh, Jesus, took her by the hand and he raised her up. And the fever, this thing that oppressed her, that had taken, overtaken her life, left her. And you got to love this because it's kind of humorous in the postmodern sense uh, where we sit today in 2019. She began to serve them. Now we have a lot of feminist scholars. They're like, oh, great. Jesus healed her just in time for dinner. Great. This is awesome. Uh, but in the ancient world, even though it was more of a male-centered society because men economically had to work in the fields because of their physical structure. This is pre-industrial revolution before machinery can give the ability and wealth and economic uh, power to women to have other options. This is the ancient world. This is not the modern or postmodern world. This is the ancient world. And 
this word here, if you remember, when Jesus was driven out into the desert and he was there when Satan was tempting him, and Mark's really quick on it, all it says is that he was tempted 40 days by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were there serving him. It's the same word. Just within the same chapter, she began to serve Jesus. She was delivered from Satan, this evil demon, this fever. And now she is equated with the angels. Are you with me? The scriptures are progressive. They're not regressive. It is a problem because we live in the moment in the forward part of history and we've been the beneficiary in Western culture because of the book, the scriptures, all of the goodness calling into question the oppression of other people. That is the New Testament. We stand here and now we can act like little whiny babies and say, oh, look at the Bible. It's oppressive. And the Bible is actually progressive. It's actually pulling us into our humanity, what we should be, not regressing us. And so this is not a slam on her. This is actually when, when a woman would be hospital, hospitable in a house in the ancient world, to serve was an honor. And it was what they wanted to do because they wanted to control the situation of their home. So this isn't oppressive. This isn't uh, uh, denigrating to uh, females. This is um, God has shown up. She's been delivered. And her response is worship. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Mark tells us that because we've got this problem coming up in Mark that the Sabbath is a time when you do no work. But since Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, since God has shown up in the flesh and he has the authority, he is in control. He can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. Remember, he delivered the guy in Jewish church on the Sabbath. No, no, Jesus. We let people suffer in their brokenness until Sabbath is done because God's got these rules that he gave us way back in the Old Testament. But when God shows up and he's the owner of the house, when the parent gets down and dirty and the parent's like, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to clean this up. We're going to just get our hands in the mess. But the people are still, there's this, there's this tension. The people know that they don't want to work on the Sabbath because that could end up getting them stoned, right? They can get died. So Mark tells us that evening at sundown, they brought all who were sick and oppressed by demons because they've already seen what happens when God shows up. Ah, when Jesus is around, evil gets dealt with. Verse 33, they don't want to break Sabbath. Jesus, uh, we're going to see his opposition with the Pharisees is coming in later chapters and later weeks. And the whole city was gathered together. Mark's being hyperbole. He's using hyperbole. The whole city didn't gather there. But he's saying a lot of people. Jesus' fame in just these couple instances is starting to swell because people are seeing a remedy to the problem. And they're showing up because they want, a, they want part of this medicinal uh, healer. They want, a, they want a person that can deliver them from their ailments. It would have been easier if Mark told us that these people had Tourette's syndrome. It would have been easier if Mark told us that they had some type of medical condition. But this is the ancient world in which their perception, the word is phenomenological. It's what you observe in reality from your vantage point. What you see from the place that you stand. This is the way they saw things. And God's actually speaking through that medium. And so the text doesn't rule out the reality that these things really are demons, that there is this dark side to the brokenness of humanity. Um, and it also doesn't rule out the medical side that says that these are the way that God had set it up with our bodies to function with all the organs and with all of the um, 
the, the necessities to make us be a living being. Are you still with me? I know, I digressed really long. I'm at 33 minutes. Okay, we gotta, we gotta move quick. It's tough work reading scripture. Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus doesn't want testimony from demons, even if it is truth. James tells us that the, the demons know about God, and they shudder. Rising very early, this is the next scene, because all these people are coming. Jesus is healing. He is meeting their needs. The very next morning, early, while it was still dark, Jesus departed, and he ran away. He went out to a desolate place where there's nobody, and he prayed. Mark is showing us here the human side of Jesus, that although he has the authority and power of God, that God has shown up in the flesh, that he's fully God, he's also fully, fully human. No ancient understanding of the gods would, that's the problem with the ancient gods, is that they've got pride. But Jesus is fully dependent upon the Father, even though he's fully one with the Father. Put that in your modern Western pipe <laughs> and smoke it, right? Okay. Jesus goes out to this desolate place and he, he prays. Peter and those who were with him, okay, remember the people he called from their fishing endeavors, and probably this other swelling crowd of other disciples that we never know their names. They searched for him. And the word searched in the Greek is this idea of tracking an animal. They're passionately pursuing Jesus. Why? Because in the ancient Jewish mind, they think that the Messiah is going to deliver them from Rome with guns ablazing. So they've got to follow him and find him because they already seen that the whole city is coming out for the party. In fact, Peter's probably thinking, hey, we can make my house the hub. We can have this mega Jewish church. We can gather money from all of these people that are, we could probably start charging them to heal them, Jesus. And this is what Jesus, when they find him, verse 37, they found him and he said to him, everyone is, Peter says, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns. We're not staying there where the popularity started to swell. Jesus says that I may preach there also in these other places, for that's why I came. And Jesus went out all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Lots of demons here in the first chapter. What we'll see through Mark is that Jesus constantly heals people, and we're going to see it in this next scene where he tells people, don't tell anybody I did this stuff. Don't tell anybody that I healed you. Don't tell anybody. Quit telling people. Because... Jesus will not be able to keep proclaiming the kingdom because the crowds keep swelling in. It's kind of like Black Friday at Walmart before they started changing the rules, right? People are getting crushed in the doorway. And of course, the irony is that you get to the end of the book and Jesus says, go tell. The, the, you know, <laughs> go tell. They don't go tell. But all these other people throughout the whole story are like, uh, they, go, they go tell when they shouldn't be telling. Peter wants to start this revolution, uh, and he's got a different understanding of revolution. You guys still good with me? I know we're, we're going a little bit long here. We've got to finish this chapter. Verse 40, a leper, a person with a skin disease, came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Leviticus chapter 13, it's about 60 verses long. If you want to go read that later, it's, it's a joy to read. It's the giving of this 
picture that these people that had these skin, there was a skin condition by the time that Levitic, from the time that Leviticus was written to the time of Jesus, that uh, there was a skin condition. We don't know if it's what we'd call in modern terms Hansen's disease, which is leprosy. It's, it's basically where your nerve endings quit and you can't feel pain. It comes on slowly. You might have it in five years, you recognize it, or 10 years or 20 years. It might come upon you and then you'll run into something and you won't feel anything. So then your skin, if a rat comes along and you get a sore and a rat and you're in the, uh, basically out in the, in the street and a rat comes along and starts eating you, you're not going to even know that it's happening. Don't you love the Bible? It's great. It's, but this is, this is the, the reality of our brokenness in a world with people. You who have experienced chronic pain or the body breaking down, you understand that it is a suffering to, uh, uh, it, you, unless you've experienced, you just don't know. In Leviticus chapter 13, the leper or the person with the skin disease was not even supposed to go up to anybody that was considered a teacher. They were not supposed to even come near him. They were supposed to yell from afar with torn clothes, shaved head, screaming, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Because they were basically the walking dead. They were a corpse and you were not supposed to touch a corpse because then you became defiled. Not because of germs or bacteria. Now granted, you might catch this, but they're thinking more on the spiritual realm and they're thinking of you're being unclean. In this, and not, not, not in the sense of germs, that's 19th and 20th century when we discovered germs. Just like when we read in the Gospels about Jesus saying about washing, the washing of hands, that whole deal. That's not about germs, that's about uncleanliness with the rules, with the law. And uh, obviously germs are still happening in the ancient world, it's just that the perspective is different. And if you read the text through the thing of saying, oh, I don't want to get something, uh, this disease, you're going to have a different, you're going to have a different perspective. The Jewish Rabbi would never even go near. The priest would never go near a person like this. But this person's not even supposed to come, and he's basically crawling towards Jesus, kneeling, and probably touching Jesus. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 41, if you have your Bibles, moved with pity or compassion. Does anybody have anger there? Does anybody have a... Some people think that, that well, the, the Greek there is actually this picture of that Jesus is actually angry. Like, well, that's not good. We like the better idea that Jesus has compassion. But what Jesus is angry about is that this disease has removed this person from society. They can't go near anybody. They have not been touched. They're not being healed. And it's this religious system that's been built up around this. And it's gone to this extreme that this person is a person created in the image of God. And they are not being made whole. Jesus moved with compassion, anger stretches out his hand and touches him. Afraid that the man is contagious, Jesus knows that his holiness is way more contagious. And he says, I am willing. I will be clean. And immediately, there's that word again, the leprosy, the skin condition left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and said, send him away at once. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Don't tell anybody. But go do what the Torah told you to do, which was to show yourself to the priest, offer the, cleansing, offer the sacrifices of what Moses commanded for proof to them that you've been healed so that you can be restored back to the community, the Jewish church. You can be restored back to living a normal life because when God shows up, those that are untouchable, those that are broken, those that have fevers, those that have a mundane life by the sea making a middle-class wage, a meaningless existence, when God shows up, all these things start to get reversed. 
But the man, it's probably hard to keep a person that's suffered so long quiet when he's delivered. Verse 45, but he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because the crowds just swarming in. Black Friday. He had to go out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. When God shows up, the brokenness gets reversed and the rejected of society gets healed. In our modern times, you might equate that to a person that's had AIDS. We know that you can't, cont- you can't, you can't get AIDS from just touch. Even people that have had cancer, sometimes people will not touch them. What we see in the scriptures are these just explosive, dynamic, complex pictures of the reality in which you and I live, in which God shows up and he heals those that are rejected. And what we're going to build through these 16 chapters, congratulations, you made it through chapter 1 of Mark. As we move through this, and he builds disciples in this training to send them out so that they are given the same authority. Have you ever delivered somebody from a demon? Maybe you don't know if you have. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's a pat on the back that you don't even know. Maybe it's saying, hey, I, I, I empathize with you in this time of sorrow. I bring you a meal. I do these things. You don't know what the holiness of God is doing through those kind acts. To be a disciple and follower of Jesus, to make fishers of men, means that you and I see people as created in the image of God. We, with the power of the Holy Spirit, go into dark places and we bring healing power. That people go, that's not religion. That's not just words from a religious book. That is the power of the living God taking back what he owns.